Well, this is not how I plan to deliver this teaching, but God evidently had other plans, and thankfully he always knows what he's doing. So as a side note, I cannot wait. I hope you can join me one week from today, Saturday evening on the field at 7 p.m. But in the meantime, I want to welcome you to week four of our series as we move through the book of Acts. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at the very first miracle that the apostles performed after the resurrection of Jesus at the very beginning of the Christian church, and then at the teaching that Peter gave just after it that sort of explains the miracle. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 12 through 21. We'll look at the miracle and then part of Peter's teaching. Verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. And a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful so he could beg from those entering the temple complex. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up, stood, and started to walk, and he entered the temple complex with them walking, leaping, and praising God. And then we'll pivot to verse 12, where Peter addresses the crowd that gathered to witness this miracle. He said, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk By our own power or godliness, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he is fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who's been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. This is God's word. So the miracle that we're looking at uh, today in, in Acts 3 is, is it's typical of, of pretty much every other miracle that's done in the New Testament. And so in a sense, if you're able to understand this miracle, then you'll be able to understand all of them. So what I would like to offer you in this teaching is basically a guide uh, to understanding this miracle and how it functions so that you can kind of take that guide and overlay it onto all of the miracle s- stories performed by Jesus or his followers uh, in the New Testament. What you're going to see is that this miracle... Like all New Testament miracles, uh, it points first off upward, it points forward, it points inward, and lastly, it it points us to the cross. And so first and foremost, what we see in in this miracle, uh, and and really all New Testament miracles, is that miracles point upward. So when Peter speaks to the lame man at the beginning of this story, uh, the second part of verse 6, he says, 
in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. And then later on, he kind of comes back to that theme in verse 16, uh, explaining that miracle to the crowd. And he says, by faith in Jesus' name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Now, this is a little bit lost on us, but in the ancient world, when you did something in someone else's name, what that meant is that you were operating not in and of your own authority, but in their authority, and the power with which you were operating was really their power. Uh, I'm going to get back to why that matters in just a moment here. Um, but a lot of people in, in our culture, in the, you know, the pragmatic, kind of very secular, uh, postmodern West, um, when people in our culture look, look at the miracle stories in the Bible, they tend to kind of dismiss them as a little bit embarrassing um, and tend to view them through this lens that says, you know, you can't really take these literally seriously uh, because, you know, these are accounts written by and for superstitious people that had no understanding of science. And so what people in the modern world will tend to do today is, is look at a miracle story in Scripture and just allegorize it to try to get the higher meaning from it. But you really can't do that with these stories. And the reason I say that is because what Peter is saying when he speaks to this lame man and says, in the name of Jesus, uh, and, and when he speaks to the crowd and said, this was all done in the name of Jesus, what Peter is really saying is that this miracle proves that the message he was preaching was Jesus' message, and the, the, the power with which he was operating was Jesus' power. Uh, and so what this miracle actually was, uh, it was a validation um, it was validation that this was Jesus' message done by Jesus' power. And it was a validation not just for the people in the crowd 2,000 years ago. It's a validation for us today that what we have in the book of Acts and in the New Testament epistles legitimately is the message of Jesus. Uh, and, and so that's what I mean when I say that, that first and foremost, the, this miracle and all the New Testament miracles point upwards. Uh, it's not just some unimportant legend that you can sort of allegorize or dismiss altogether. Uh, it's something that needs to be acknowledged. But in saying that, before I move on from this idea, let me just offer something that I think is, is, um, is, is really important to remember. The book of Acts was originally written, if you remember this from re- week one, Luke wrote Acts and he wrote it to a man named Theophilus, who we don't know a lot about, but we do know that he was sophisticated, he was educated, and... Um, And he was skeptical. He hadn't necessarily bought in entirely to all the truth claims of Christianity, but he wanted to find out for himself whether or not it was true. So Luke basically wrote Acts as an apologetic for the truth of Christianity to him. So if you're tuning in, if you're joining me right now, and you're kind of where Theophilus was, where you wouldn't necessarily say you've bought in all the way, but you're seeking and you're investigating, and you want to know whether or not Christianity is true, I think the best piece of advice that I can offer to you is to not get hung up on the miracle stories uh, of the New Testament. In other words, don't start there. Uh, I, I remember back when um, I was in college, I was at a house party one time, and I was talking to a friend of mine, um, not, not a Christian, but we started talking about Jesus, and we started talking about the miracle stories of the New Testament, and I asked him what he thought about that. And uh, I, I remember the exact way that he phrased it. He said that uh, all the miracles, in quotes, he would put them, of the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles, he dismissed them all as, as what he referred to as a magician's move. 
He said that's what they were. And his, his point was that you can't really take any of them seriously. You can't possibly believe any of them. Um, and, and the only reason that people back then believed in him was because they were gullible and, and easy to manipulate. And so what happened was because he was un, unwilling to entertain the idea that, that a miracle could legitimately take place, he completely dismissed Christianity altogether. And, and, and what I'm trying to say here is if you're on the outside of Christianity but you're investigating the, the best thing for you to do, instead of starting with the philosophical idea of whether or not a miracle is possible, the smartest thing for you to do is to begin with the person of Jesus, uh, with his character, with his claims, and with the historical evidence for his resurrection, which is actually exactly what Peter and Paul repeatedly challenged people in their day to do every single time they presented the gospel. I mean, even in this account, what you'll notice is, is that after Peter performs this miracle and this crowd gathers, uh, Peter does, he, he makes a deliberate conscious effort to do everything he can to pull people's focus from the miracle that took place and from himself who worked that miracle uh, and, he, and he wants to, to put their focus on to Jesus because Jesus is the focal point of Christianity. Jesus is where you should start. Jesus is how you're going to find out whether or not this belief system is reliable and, and, and safe to dedicate your entire life to. I, I heard a, a story from a, um, about a pastor one time who had somebody come into his office and uh, you know, the individual said, you know, I could believe in God if you could give me a watertight argument for believing in him. And I love the pastor's response. I thought this was so wise. His response back was, well, what if God didn't give us a watertight argument? What if he gave us a watertight person? And that's exactly who Jesus is. Uh, he, he, he's a person against whom, in the end, no argument can be made. Not when you consider the evidence uh, and the data that surrounded who he was and what he did and what he claimed and how unique it all was and the historical evidence for his resurrection. So, uh, the, the point is that, that if you're trying to figure out whether or not this thing is, is true, Christianity is true, and, and for you, uh, start with Jesus, because that's ultimately where all the miracle stories are designed to point you. So first and foremost, miracles point upward. But secondly, what we see in, in, in this account and in, in all the New Testament miracle accounts is that miracles point forward. So in verse 8, we read uh, regarding the lame man. It says, he jumped up, he stood, and he started to walk, and he entered the temple complex with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. So what we're told in this story is that this man, upon being healed, he did not just begin walking, but he was jumping and he's actually leaping. And that's a really important detail uh, for Luke to include in this story because no reader of the Bible in Luke's day would have been able to read those words without immediately being reminded of something found in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, which says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy." Now, Isaiah 35, it, what it's describing is what's going to happen in this world when God returns and restores everything. Uh, now Luke recorded this story for us in a way that would specifically draw our attention to that, and even Peter draws that same connection. Because at the end of, uh, toward the end of, of, of his um, sermon that he gave uh, to this crowd that gathered around when they saw this, this lame man that was now up and running, he says in verse 21 that heaven must welcome Jesus until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. So, so secondly, this miracle, and all New Testament miracles, what they do is they point forward. 
if you study the miracles of, of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, one thing that, that's really important to see is that they, not a single miracle performed is, is just a naked display of power. And what I mean by that is you're never going to find the apostles performing superhuman feats of strength, you know, throwing boulders, flying, shooting lasers out of their eyes just for the amusement of the crowd that day. One of the things that every New Testament miracle has in common, without fail, is that every single one of them serves to alleviate human suffering or trouble in some way. Whether it's, it's uh, water being turned into wine in order to save a newlywed couple from the embarrassment and shame that they would have otherwise experienced, or a man who had been blind, uh, born blind and taught to believe that he was born blind because God hated him, having his eyes open for the very first time, every one of the New Testament miracles served to alleviate human suffering in some way. And the reason for that is because these miracles are ultimately, they're pointing forward to the end of, of human history in which God is going to come back and restore all things. And, and in doing that, what these miracles remind us of is that God did not invent blindness. And God did not invent lameness, and he did not originally design the world to be a place of suffering and a place of, of death. And if you go back to the beginning of the Bible in the, in the Garden of Eden, what you're going to find is that when God originally placed us here, he designed human life to be a, a, a life in which we had perfect harmony with, with God, with each other, and with creation itself. But when we turned our back on him, that's when sin began to tear everything apart. That's when, when poverty and injustice and sickness and sorrow and anxiety and depression and suffering and death all began to tear apart this existence. And so what we're being shown in this miracle in Acts 3 and in all of the New Testament miracle stories is essentially that God is no happier with the world than you are. And, and God will one day uh, remove all the brokenness of this world and fix all the brokenness of this world once and for all because he hates that brokenness just as much as you do. And understanding that, there, there's really two implications that, that, that I want to draw from this. On the one hand, what this means is that if we claim to be the people of God, if you personally claim to be on God's side, and if we desire to be a church that's on God's side, what this means is that we are called to be enemies of suffering in this world, and we are called to be a community of people that work as hard as we can to end suffering and alleviate suffering every chance we get. And in case you're wondering or in case you're new to this church, it's this idea that really informs why serving the community is so integral uh, to our church's DNA. It's why we do things like Serve Week. It's why we do things like Winter Relief. And it's why we just recently started doing this thing called the Pop-Up Pantry. I don't know if you're aware of this, but just a couple of weekends ago, we partnered with a local elementary school, Quarterfield Elementary, uh, and on a, on a Saturday afternoon over the span of about uh, three or four hours, we gave away something like 20,000 pounds of food. But what's really important to understand is, is why we did that. All right, we don't do things like that because, you know, it just feels good to give. Um, we, we don't do that because it's great PR for a local church in a time when the church could, you know, use a little bit better reputation. We do that because according to scripture, we serve a God who hates suffering. And so we understand that what it means to be his hands and feet in this world, uh, a huge part of that means that we are called to work against and to alleviate suffering uh, in the lives of the people that we come across. So first off, understanding what this miracle is showing us. What it does on the one hand is it produces this supernatural motivation to end suffering in the lives of others, 
But what it also does, what understanding this does, is it gives us a supernatural ability to endure suffering in our own lives. And, and, and the reason that I say that is because in Jesus, I'll just make this, this, this personal for me, but this is, this is a, uh, uh, something that we can all hold on to, by grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus. What miracles like this remind me of personally is that this body is a rental. Meaning, whatever happens to this body over the several decades that God decides to give me, whatever happens to it, this is not my final form. And what's going to happen according to Scripture at the end of my life is that when this body is finally done away with, I will be raised to new life and given a new body, which is basically shown in the resurrection of Jesus himself. And this new body will be completely freed from the presence and the stain and the corruption of sin altogether. And it's going to be free from pain and free from, from brokenness and free from sorrow forever. That's not a, a sentimental thing that we hold on to as Christians. That's, that's fact. And so the plain fact that we hold on to in Jesus is, is just like Isaiah says, one day the eyes of the blind will be opened forever. And one day the ears of the deaf will be unstopped forever. And one day the lame will leap like a deer forever. And one day the tongue of the mute will sing for joy forever. That's what every single person has in their future in Jesus. And the more that that truth sinks deeply into our lives, the more that it allows us to walk through whatever our current lot in this life happens to be. So secondly, miracles point forward. But the third thing that we can see in this story is that miracles actually point us inward. Right, almost every miracle story in the New Testament uh, serves not only to remind us of the final salvation that we will one day have, which we just talked about, but what they also do is they remind us of, of the, the present salvation that we need and that we have access to because of Jesus. Uh, and this miracle in Acts 3 really, really elaborates on that in a very poignant and powerful way. And to explain what I mean, what I want to do is just look carefully at the recipient of this miracle. There, there's two specific details Luke records for us in Acts 3 that I think are worth highlighting and, and taking a moment to consider. The first is that according to this account, the man that was healed here was not lame as a result of an injury, he was born lame, uh, which had all kinds of stigma associated with it in, in, in Peter's day. But what that means is that the, the state that Peter found him in was the only life that he had ever known. The second thing that, that's really noteworthy is that uh, Scripture tells us that this man, when he saw Peter walking by him, he was asking for money. The reason that's noteworthy to me is because this man had to have heard about the miracle stories that had taken place in and around Jerusalem over the last, you know, around about four years. There's absolutely no way that he hadn't heard what Jesus and, and some of the followers of Jesus were able to, to do to the, to the, the tune of, of miracles. But this man was not asking for a miracle in this story. He was just asking for money. And into that situation, Peter looks at him and he and he speaks to him, and what he says to him in the first half of, of verse 6, he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. Uh, and just like that, this man is, is given a life that, that was previously you know, greater than anything he had ever imagined. And, and so if I could just zoom out from the picture here in, in Luke 3, uh, pardon me, Acts 3, um, he, here's what we're left with. What we have is a picture of a man who is ready to settle for a, a temporary improvement upon or at least distraction from the life that he was living 
when what Peter offered him through Jesus, really what Jesus was offering him, was a brand new life altogether. And I don't, I don't want this to sound you know, needlessly offensive, but, but I think it's important to understand that if you don't see yourself in the life of the lame man in this story, then it's just because you don't know yourself very well. Scripture could not be any more clear that the moment that sin has entered the world, what's happened, this is just an innate part of human existence now, that this lie has passed deeply into every one of our hearts that tells us, we, nobody needs to teach us this, we all intuitively hold on to this, we all believe that we know what it's going to take to make us happy. Uh, that we know what it's going to take to make us whole. That we know what it's going to take to satisfy us and fulfill us and make our lives worth, worth living. And we all look for it outside of God and we're all wrong. Because every time we get our hands on, if we ever do, every time we get our hands on whatever that thing is, it always leaves us wanting more, needing more, unsatisfied by what we have. And the reason for that is because on the one hand, we fail to understand the depth of our own need and we fail to understand exactly what it takes, how much it takes to fill our souls. But what this, what this story remind, should remind all of us of in pointing inward into our lives is that it takes a lot more than gold and silver to satisfy us, that we need more than gold and silver. We need more than a temporary improvement upon or distraction from our, the, the lives that, that we're living. What we need is a brand new life altogether. And that, and nothing less is what Jesus stands ready to offer all of us. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 5, we find an almost identical miracle story to this one here in Acts 3. Um, only in, in Luke 5, it's Jesus himself who winds up healing a paralyzed man. And I don't have time to get into all the details of that story, but one of the most noteworthy things about it is that before Jesus heals this paralyzed man, he forgives his sins. He tells this man, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And what Jesus is doing in healing a man's sins before he heals that man's body is he's making this really profound statement that, that what the human heart needs most deeply is a right relationship with God that is based purely on God's mercy and God's forgiveness. What Jesus was showing us there in Luke 5 is that as bad as human suffering is, as bad as physical suffering is, as bad as all the brokenness of this world is, that's not our primary problem. There's a need that goes underneath that need. And our, our greatest need is to have our sin dealt with. Our greatest need is to have a right relationship with God and to have a heart that's filled certain of the love that God has for us. Then and only then will our deepest need be met. Because you, you can think about it this way. If that paralyzed man in Luke 5, upon hearing Jesus say, it, what, what happens is his friends lower him down through a roof to get him to Jesus. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And if that paralyzed man had said to Jesus in hearing that his sins were forgiven, hey, you know, we can talk religion and spirituality later, but what I need right now is to be able to walk. If he had said that to Jesus, then Jesus could have easily answered him back by saying, listen, you have told yourself that because you've told yourself that you believe if you could walk again, then you'd never be unhappy again. But Jesus could have easily said, that's simply not true. And all you need to do is look around you. Look at all these people who have been able to walk their whole lives and understand that they're not any happier than you are. And the point that I'm driving at in all of this is, is that every single one of us at some level has a tendency to think like the man in this story. Because we, 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 we fail to see the depth of our own need. 
and we fail to understand what it's really going to take to satisfy our souls. And so we go through life and we look for, for silver and gold or whatever the equivalent of that is. We look for something earthly. We look for something romantic. We look for something emotional. We look for something physical, something economic. And we tell ourselves all the while that if I could just get that, then my life could begin. Then I would be happy. Then you know, I would be whole. But what Jesus would say to every one of us today is you're lying to yourself. And I think at least a part of us knows that. Because I'm willing to bet that, that there's a lot of people listening to this right now who if you got really honest with yourself, you, you could admit that you are standing right now in what you used to consider to be the promised land. Meaning that you right now have something that, that months or, or maybe years ago you told yourself would make you happy and yet here you are and you're, and you're still unsatisfied. And, and matter of fact, you, you might actually be in a worse state because now you're just more stressed out about losing that thing, whatever it is. Or, or, or maybe some of us listening to this right now, maybe where you're at is you have, you have lost something. And that's what's making you miserable. Because whatever that thing was, that's what you look to to give you what only God could give you. But in either case, the lesson is the same. We all need something. We all need something to fill our souls. And that something is nothing less than the love of God. You know, to put, to put it another way, suffering is, is, is a hard enough thing to deal with. Suffering is bad enough. But apart from a deeply personal relationship with God, where he is the most important thing to you, and you're building your life off of what he has to say about you, and you're staking your hope on what, what he, he promised you, he's purchased for you in your future, apart from that, then suffering in this life, which is hard enough to deal with anyway, is going to be I- intolerable. I mean, uh, 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 it's one thing to have a financial loss. That's bad enough. But if your identity and your security were based on that money, then a painful loss becomes devastating. You know, it's one thing to lose someone that you love, either because of a breakup or because of death. But if that, if that person was the main source of love in your life, then the loss of that relationship, which was going to be painful anyway, that will cause you to just spiral through life without any idea of who you are anymore. It's going to cause you to spiral through life wondering if life's even worth living anymore. It's one thing to experience a profound kind of of physical suffering like the man in Acts chapter 3 experienced for for the first 40 years of his life. That's hard enough, but apart from, from a hope that goes beyond this life that's rooted in Jesus and the promise of resurrection, then that physical suffering is going to be impossible to walk through with any kind of endurance. And so if I can bottom line this third idea, let me just do so by saying that that Scripture reminds us unequivocally on the one hand that God hates human suffering. And God takes it incredibly seriously. He takes it so seriously that he took it on himself on the cross and he promised that one day he's going to deal with it forever. But what Scripture is also so careful to remind us of that we are so wise to remember is that an ounce of sin can destroy us far more than a lifetime of suffering. Because suffering, when it is correctly processed, when it's rightly processed, all suffering really has the power to do is make you stronger, uh, make you happier, make you more compassionate to the people God's placed in your life, make you more dependent on God himself, more prepared to spend an eternity with him. But what sin will do is it'll destroy your relationship with God. And it'll destroy your relationship with others because it'll cause you to sink in on yourself and become more self-centered and more self-absorbed. And so what this miracle and all New Testament miracles do is they call us to look in, to go deeper, and to see what we actually need as creatures created in the image of God. Thirdly, 
miracles point inward. But fourthly, and this will be the last idea that I leave you with during our time here together, is that miracles point to the cross. In, uh, in Acts 3, verse 18, what we read is, but what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. <clears throat> One last thing that, that I wanted to point out, uh, talking about the miracles of the New Testament that makes them so unique, is that whether the miracles done by Jesus or the apostles, the miracles performed in the New Testament always make the miracle worker more vulnerable. And you can see it here if you follow this episode in the church's history to its end. Because what happens after this miracle draws a crowd and Peter preaches is actually it winds up getting Peter and John thrown in jail where they're threatened, which begins uh, a long line of persecution for, for God's people. And so performing this miracle in every sense of the word, it made them more vulnerable. And you see that same theme in Jesus' life. I mean, in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you read that story, you'll see that it was Jesus' decision to raise Lazarus from the dead that caused the religious leaders in his day to say, okay, now, he, now Jesus needs to die. And so in this kind of paradoxical way, what you're seeing is Jesus' decision to save Lazarus' life actually cost him his own in a way. And there's another really famous account where a woman with a, with a hemorrhage comes to Jesus uh, and, and she touches him and she's healed in touching him, but Jesus says that in touching him, power came out from him. And, and so it's almost, what it's showing us is, is, is that power needed to leave Jesus in order to enter that woman's life and heal her. And so what, what all the, the New Testament miracles are showing us in some way, shape, or form is it, they're all giving us a glimpse of this idea, the concept of, of substitution. See, whenever people say that, that the, the Bible is like all other supernatural legends and it kind of you know, can be held up alongside of them and placed in the same category, um, what they, what's happened is they fail to see what's so unique about the supernatural accounts in Scripture. When you look at, at ancient fiction... Uh, like Greek mythology, or even modern day fiction, you know, where you see, you know, superheroes, people with supernatural powers, one thing that, that they all have in common is that their powers make them less vulnerable. I mean, you, you can look at, at um, you know, more modern superheroes, Superman, Spider-Man, Captain America, you name it, their powers always make them less, less invulnerable, make them stronger, make them, make them, um, um, more able to deal with, you know, bullets bounce off of them and they're less susceptible to death. But when you hold that up to, to the miracle stories of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, what makes them so different is that their miracles, and particularly the miracles of Jesus, actually made them significantly weaker. And in what a lot of people uh, consider to be really the, the, the greatest miracle in, in, in history, it, this thing that we call the incarnation, in which God actually entered human history, what that, a miracle, what that miracle did at its essence is it made Jesus, it made the Son of God killable. In other words, it made the author of life subject to death. See, if, if Jesus had come to this earth in strength the first time that he came here in order to obliterate all sources of evil in the world, then he would have had to obliterate us because the self-centeredness of the human heart is one of the main one of the primary sources of evil in this world. And so what the gospel shows us is that in coming here the first time Jesus came here in weakness. And he went to the cross in weakness. And he paid the penalty for our sins in weakness. 
And so what we're seeing is that Jesus' power is only available to us because of his weakness. And what we also see time and time again in Scripture is that his power, is, is, uh, it only comes into our lives personally through our weakness if we're, if we're willing to accept that we're not qualified to be our own Lord and Savior, that we do need someone to forgive us of our sins, that it's not something we can deal with on our own, and we repent and we hand over control of our lives to Jesus. And so first off, Jesus' power is only available through his weakness. It only enters your life personally through your weakness. But finally, his power can only be extended through us to a world that needs that power through our weakness as well. And what I want to do... Um, to end today is I'd like to leave you with an eyewitness account of how Christians behaved during the plagues of the 2nd and 3rd century in the Greco-Roman world. Almost 2,000 years ago, there were these, these terrible urban plagues, and we still don't exactly know what the disease was. Our, our best guess is that it was something like Ebola. What we do know is that people were dying in, in horrifyingly excruciating ways. And it instilled such a fear and such a panic in the general population that people were basically willing to sever all ties uh, and to leave the sick behind. And what I mean by that is parents were leaving their children to die. And spouses were leaving their spouses to die. Uh, they were leaving their elderly behind. And, and, and they were dying in the streets. And they would have died alone if it were not for Christians. Because in the midst of that plague, what we know uh, from historical evidence is that while everybody else fled, Christians stayed behind to take care of those who were dying. Uh, and this is, this, is what, this is a direct quote from one of the eyewitnesses that's been preserved throughout history. It says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. And it's this last sentence that hits me the hardest. It says, Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves, and died in their stead. Now, I just want to ask you, where do you think they got that idea? Where, what made Christians so willing to make others strong through their own weakness? The answer to that question is found unequivocally in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, which says that Jesus was crucified in weakness but he lives by God's power. For we also are weak in him, yet toward you we will live with him by God's power. If you want to understand the miracles of Jesus, or the miracles done in his name, you have to understand that the miracles point upward, validating that the message of the gospel is real. They point forward, reminding us of our future hope, they point inward, showing us what our real need is and how it can only be met by a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And lastly, those miracles point us to the cross where we see what Jesus, the Son of God, did for us and we find the power to go and do likewise for the people he's placed in our lives. That's it. And that's all.